Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. We are here with Dr. Andrew Colombo Dogavito uh, with the University of North Texas, which I just learned is in Denton in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, we are discussing a paper titled Adapted Physical Educators' Perspectives of Educational Research. Uh, the paper was recently published in Research Quarterly for Exercise and Sport. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me to talk about uh, your article. Thanks, Risto, for having me. Um, and I also just want to acknowledge my co-authors, Dr. Scott McNamara at the University of Northern Iowa, and Brad Wiener, uh, who's with the Montgomery County Public Schools, and Christopher Ahrens in the San Diego Unified School District. Awesome. And I know uh, Scott has his own podcast, too, in the APE world. So uh, shout out to that. And hopefully uh, we'll, uh, we'll get this information through that podcast as well. So um, let's let's begin. Can you just tell us what led up to you conducting this just uh, this study in general? This study was initiated by Scott and Chris, and I believe it was initiated first by Chris, who wanted to learn more. Being an adapted teacher out in the schools, not having a great amount of access to all of the new literature going on, he had reached out to Scott just looking for sources, looking for re, uh, research, and them not really being able to find great ways of how practitioners could access research. And so that's kind of where the whole idea got started. So in the introduction, you talk about how many educator or how a ton of educators usually get their effective teaching information from other teachers and online platforms. They go on Twitter to find out what the next kind of right thing to do is. So do you think that it's possible for us as PEAT researchers to meet them where they are and, you know, for us to really take that extra step to disseminate their research on platforms like PE Central or the Facebook page for PE teachers where those teachers actually are? Absolutely. Um, I think it's going to take a, a pretty big concerted effort by researchers to get research into places that are accessible, right? I mean, many of us through job requirements have to publish in journals. We have to go to conferences to do presentations and that's often not accessible for the, the broad swath of teachers. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is though publishing or, or doing the work in, you know, putting stuff onto platforms like PE Central or doing podcasts like this or, um, you know, disseminating work that is more readable in tweets or blogs is not really incentivized, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's, we don't get credit for doing all that extra work, but if we want our work to be impactful, those are the places that we need to go to because teachers outside of a, a select few, um, aren't necessarily getting their information from the places that we're putting it. Yeah, absolutely. I just did my annual review and as an exercise i i took one of my papers that was published in a journal behind a paywall and i looked at how many views it had then i looked at i did a podcast with it and then added it to researchgate as a preprint and uh, those two things and you know access through other other avenues increased the viewing of that like 350%, you know, absolutely. And, and the downloads and then the access that it has. So I, I think that you're right. There is, 
there isn't a lot of incentive, but if you do the simple steps of every time you publish a paper, put it up on ResearchGate so it's accessible for free. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are big things. So. Yeah, I, I think ResearchGate has been a, a really big help um, as long as the teachers know that they can go there. Yeah. Um, I think another thing most educators don't realize is if they run into a paywall, um, if you often if you email the, the first author, whoever the contact author is, often they'll send you the paper, right. you know, even if it might not be the published version that you would see in the journal, but it's pretty darn close, you're going to get about the same information. Yeah. It's the same content, but the page numbers are different. And, it, you know, and that's it. Exactly. But you're getting the same information, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. So research suggests that researchers should try to present their research at conferences uh, that PE and AP teachers attend. But a lot of practitioners are more drawn to the 101 ways to uh, you know, use a hula hoop or things, sessions like that, or, you know, sessions that give you the recipes for success on Monday, um, rather than going into the researcher presentations. So do you have any advice on how to attract more practitioners to research sessions at professional conferences? Yeah, I, I wish I had like the golden ticket for this. Um, but it's something that I've really been thinking a lot about over the last couple of years. Um, mostly because I do recognize this, right? I do recognize giving a, a research talk, even if it's at, you know, more of a practitioner, practitioner-centric uh, conference like a SHAPE. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not many practitioners who go to those research talks. Um, and, and it's right, they're, they're often, we're not talking their language. We have a, a format about it. You know, we, we go through and we use very jargon-loaded language that isn't accessible and, and it's not really engaging um, for practitioners to go to that stuff. And so I think as researchers, we, we have to think radically about how we're presenting our information and the audience that we're, that we're presenting to. And if we want our work to be used, we have to package it in a way that is accessible and that it is usable, right? Maybe it's, not necessarily something that they can take and just use a game and exchange it. You know, that's not necessarily the work we're doing, but we have to put it in language into a package that practitioner can come to and go, Oh, that's something that I can use in my classroom. Um, and recently I learned from uh, Brad Wiener, one of the, one of my co-authors and Dr. Justin Hagel um, are doing a collaborative presentation using Justin's research and Brad is putting it into a into a, a more practical um, way. I'm, I don't know all the details about it. I just got a little gist from Brad um, a couple of days ago. But those types of partnerships, I think, can be really powerful moving forward, where if if as researchers, we have things that we think are important, making a collaborative relationship with a practitioner that can take and translate our research into the language that practitioners are going to be able to use, I think is going to be, you know, something in moving forward, really important if we want to make sure our research is actually getting into the classroom and being used. Yeah. And I realized the way that I asked that question was how to attract more practitioners to research sessions. And I think what you're saying is, 
it's probably the other way around that researchers should start going into practitioner sessions at conferences or, you know, I, I found so many good, um, you know, researchers like Ash Casey, who has the PPRN blog. Um, mm -hmm. That's awesome. He does a paper every single week, breaks it down. It's easy to read. It doesn't use the jargon. Um, you know, we have the HPE website that has a blog that we have different researchers go on and explain their research in simpler terms. And I think it's, you know, even when I read some of these research articles, they are super hard for me to understand. Like I, I go in and I talk to some of my master's students and they're like, man, that article was so dense. I'm like, yeah, I agree. It's really yeah. dense. It's really hard. It's very important, but also there was a way for that person to write that with a little bit more simple language that doesn't like push away 50% of the readers that start reading that article. Yeah. And, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but I think, you know, as researchers, we, 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 we enjoy making ourselves sound smart, right? Mm -hmm. We like using big language. We like showing off to peers, right? We like showing off how smart we are, how, you know, impactful this research is and use really jargonistic language. Yeah. And if, if we want work to be impactful, it, that type of stuff just isn't going to work, right? There, I think there are places for that, absolutely. But if we're talking about doing work that goes from a, a research setting into a classroom setting, we have to do that precursor work in order to make the transition happen, right? Mm -hmm. We have to put it in language that people can use. That, you know, We can't just put it out there and expect everybody else to do the extra work to translate it into their own um, situation. Yeah. Right? We we're, we have to we have to make those steps. We have to meet people at least halfway, if not a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. So, can you tell me about what you did uh, in the methods? Uh, like, what did you actually do in the study? Yeah. So we surveyed um, a whole bunch of teachers. We started out with surveying uh, with with reaching out to national organizations and sending a survey that we had adapted um, from a previous uh, bit of research on administrators. And again, it was looking at, at how administrators and more general classroom teachers used research or thought about research. And so for mostly ease and speed, we saw that the questions that were being asked in that survey were really in line with what we wanted to know, but we just wanted to make it focused on adapted physical educators. Um, and so we adapted that survey. We started out by sending it out to um, organizations that had an adapted component. And then we also, after that, we, we reached out to um, former APE Teachers of the Year in kind of a snowball method of, of trying to, to build our sample size. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So your results section has three main themes. You had number one, a frequency of use of research, number two, <laughs> access to research, and then number three, perceptions toward research. So can you talk us through uh, through these and how they relate to the purpose of your study? Absolutely. So our purpose uh, really was to look at how adaptive physical educators used research or what their perceptions were toward research. Mm -hmm. 
And in that first um, theme, frequency of, of use, we found that a, a lot, um, a majority, about 61% had conducted research and many of them did so, about a quarter did so on a yearly basis. Um, and even some did it what they would consider on a weekly basis, about 10, 9%, I believe it was. Um, and mostly it was for individuals who wanted to discover better ways of teaching or to improve their ability to advocate for their students. Um, there were some individuals, about 48 out of our sample, um, of a, we had about 124 in our sample, um, that didn't do any research. And mostly it's because they said their job was to teach and not do research mm -hmm. and that they had no time essentially. Um, and so when we, when we looked at that frequency of use, I think one of, one of the limitations we had here is we didn't necessarily define what we considered research. Um, and so people taking that survey may have had a little bit different of an idea of what research might actually be where some, may have thought of research as, you know, conducting a study or, or doing an experiment or something like that, where others might have considered, you know, looking up literature and mm -hmm. doing, um, going into databases or Google Scholar, things like that, and looking up articles, right? They may have considered that to be research. Right. Um, and for the most part, people who did do research um, found that it did expand their understanding of an issue. Um, and so the perception there is that those who are using research actually had a, a positive view for the most part of it. Um, the, the flip side of that though, is there are, there was individuals who basically said research was not timely enough or, or the stuff that they were reading just wasn't applicable um, you know, for their profession directly. When we look at access, um, a ton of individuals didn't have access um, to research. Those that did, the, the vast majority got information from colleagues. Um, and, and funny enough, uh, one of the lowest ranked places that people got research from was faculty members. Yeah. So people are, are getting information from their own colleagues and peers, but they're not reaching out to, you know, the faculty at universities to get information firsthand. Yeah. And so I, that's, I, yeah. I would add to that, that I feel that that is very accurate. I think that yeah. there are strong communities and some alumni networks from different universities, but I'm not sure if that's passing down research and passing down the latest um, you know, research article or something like that. So, uh, yeah. and I, and I find that interesting because it, that's what you should be doing, but I guess those are no longer your students. So those are not necessarily on your radar as a faculty member as a number one priority. Right. And, and we have, I mean, there's so many things that, that pull faculty's time and just resources. Um, but you know, I, I try to think back of all the emails the lack of emails that I've gotten from previous students who are now teaching. And it's like, I, I don't have very many. And I can even think of when I was a, a teacher and I was having an issue in a classroom, I didn't think about going and, and sending a message to my former you know, teachers. I would ask colleagues or I'd send it to friends who yeah. were in some of the same, same cohort. And so 
I think that that built-in community there is really powerful. The, the trouble we know about those is those communities can be very insular. And so they may not necessarily be sharing the information that is most impactful or even most efficient or effective. Yeah, absolutely. So what about the perceptions toward uh, research? Yeah, so I think um, we had a fair number of individuals who saw research in a positive view. Um, People said things, uh, highly ranked things like research uh, provide valuable service to educational practitioners, um, well-designed study with strong findings can change people's minds, education. Another thing, lowest rank one was the education research is a waste of money. So people at least saw research in a positive view. The, the thing that was interesting that, that came of this um, was based on the uh, amount of degrees individuals had, they saw research um, as less uh practical um not necessarily sorry not less practical but it was a waste of money so Mm -hmm. if an individual had a master's degree or even a phd they looked at education research as a waste of money um and so we think we thought perhaps this was due to them actually being involved in research and kind of getting an, an insider view during their graduate studies um that because research wasn't aligned with the needs of teachers that it can be a waste of money right if if you're doing a study because it's really interesting to you as a researcher but the outcomes for your study aren't applicable necessarily or aren't viewed as applicable to the practitioner well that study is going to be a waste right because it's there's not going to be a transfer of information there and and how much of educational research is done with a PhD student or, you know, an early career researcher who goes in and says, I'm really interested to see how this works in this in this case because of my experience in this other school that I was at. And then they come in and do a study. And I'm I'm guilty of that. You know, I yeah. in my dissertation, I was super interested in a specific thing. I didn't go to the school and sit down and interview 10 teachers over a year to try to figure out what do they need? What research yeah. should I do that helps those teachers? I thought my top-down approach was helping students and teachers because I, of course, am the savior of the universe and yeah. my ideas are better than the teacher's ideas. And that's not necessarily how I went about it, but now in hindsight, when I reflect on, on that, I look at that and I'm like, well, that wasn't really the right way to do things. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a problem that's insular to PEAT research or adapted PE research. Yeah, um, I, th- I think that I think it is a research problem. Um, you know, we we are experts of our topic area and oftentimes we think we know best. Mm-hmm. But if we're if we are behavioral researchers and we're removed from the places that we're doing research in, you know, we may not necessarily be up on all the little intricate things that might be impacting a teacher, or we may be viewing it from a particular theoretical lens or a, a certain paradigm that when we just go and talk to teachers, they're like, look, I just want to know how to get kids engaged. Like, I don't care about all this other stuff. That, that can be important, 
But what they want to know is how to keep people engaged, how to get kids to be more skillful, how to you know have a, a better managed class. And it's actually one of my other areas that I'm really interested in is the idea of participatory research. And I'm glad you gave me a segue for this um, because a part of our methodology in this was including uh, Chris and Brad, who are PE teachers in the schools, right on, right in the, the, um, where all the action is happening. And Scott and I made a very conscious decision to include them within this work, not only because they were interested, um, and Chris was, was one of the drivers of the topic, but because we knew they would add value to the findings, to the research process. And so there were times where as researchers, Scott and I would look at a, a question or we'd look at a finding and we would have a certain view or a certain way of, of interpreting that. And Chris and Brad would have ultimately something different because they were viewing it as, as practitioners. And so because of that, we were able to have a, a much greater depth within our findings and within our interpretations of the data um, that I think is, is really uh, impactful ultimately for this study. And hopefully um, more researchers will, will continue that practice. Um, and if I can throw in another plug, I've, I'll be leading a, a webinar through the um, research and learning in PE uh, special interest group through AERA. Um, I believe next month we're going to be running it uh, and it's going to be about participatory designs and how to not only as a researcher engage um, practitioners in research, but the other way around, how do, how do practitioners also, how can they engage um, to create, start creating a dialogue about building in these participatory types of practices so that we actually have outcomes in research that are much more aligned with the needs of the, of the stakeholders that we're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the ARA SIG um, meetings, those are, those are great for exactly this, of having this conversation around that point. And, you know, we, we just finished a project working with a, um, a first year teacher in an urban, um, urban school for first year. And, you know, we had him as a part of the data process throughout the whole time. When we had analyzed that data, we sent him our interpretations and we gave him an opportunity to really speak back and disagree and agree with what he perceived as reality versus what we as outside researchers perceived as his reality. And so I think that yeah. those are those are all methods that are really important to do. And, you know, it's it's super important if you go into a community that you are not a part of. Do you have yeah. a community insider on a part of this grant or, you know, for in other countries, if you do indigenous work and you're asking for federal funding, you have to have a person, a part of that indigenous community, be a part of that grant, and rightfully so. Like, there's been yeah. so much research that people just, you know, you you parachute in and you gather the data and you just like hike it back up to your ivory tower and type it up and submit it to a journal that nobody ever sees. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we could we could certainly talk very long on this, yeah. um, but definitely as. As a researcher, I think it's it's absolutely vital to include 
the stakeholders that you're working with in more than a tokenistic um, way, right? Just sending a survey out or, you know, kind of quick asking opinions. I think that's a great start, mm -hmm. but, but empowering teachers, uh, empowering other stakeholders, whether it's working with disabled populations, or as you said, indigenous populations or populations that are typically excluded from research, mostly because the researchers doing that work don't look like them. Yeah. I think is very, very powerful. And I hope that it's a, it's a shift, um, in our research and practices. Absolutely. So let's get back to the teachers. In, in your yeah. study, you said that the teachers said that they don't have enough time or that the research is not part of your job, like you talked about earlier. So how yeah. do you think people in administration or school districts can better implement research into their teachers' lives through you know, school or during school time or professional development? Well, I think it's a very loaded question, and I think a really hard question to ask or answer. Um, it's an easy question to ask. It's a hard yeah, it's an easy answer. question to ask, right? Um, I think it's going to take again a, a, a shift, right? I think the hard part is we have school administrators who are overburdened, um, and district leaders who are overburdened and who are trying to meet certain federal guidelines uh, with ever decreasing money. And that trickles down to teachers and we, teachers have increasing demands on time and even less time to do these extra activities when there's no incentivize, uh, incentivization, mm -hmm. right? We, in talking with Chris and Brad about this piece, it's like they, they literally got, and I'm using literally in, in the actual sense, they literally get no benefit from having their names attached to this paper or spending the extra hours working with Chris and I, or sorry, with uh, Scott and I, in order to write this paper up and get it submitted. They just, they don't. Right. Um, and so it really is going to take a shift if we want research practices to be embedded in schools, it's going to take a shift in how things are designed. And I think that's a... <laughs> much bigger problem um, than what we're ever going to be able to tackle just in small studies or or even just in in districts or you know municipalities cities towns or states like it's going to take a, a big change across the whole spectrum of education yeah. um, and it even boils into those professional development practices and it's some of the ancillary work that I've looked at in, in helping uh, certain doc students in other departments is that professional develop isn't professional development isn't always necessarily aligned with the needs of what teachers see in the classroom. Um, and so, so maybe that's a, a place to start where if you're a, a faculty member in an area and you've built a relationship with a school or a school district of, you know, going in and saying, Hey, would you, be able to allot me, you know, one day or a half a day or an hour to do a little professional development for teachers or for PE teachers. And so I think it's going to take, again, some initiative from uh, the researchers to, you know, get themselves and embed themselves into those practices with ever, which with whatever school districts are available to them. Yeah. And we, we have a, great connections with the local schools here and 
Um, last year we had, we've done professional development for a local school district and they asked their teachers, what are they lacking in? They're like, these are the goals of the year. These are the things that we need you and expect you to do. What are you lacking? And the secondary teachers said, you know, you're expecting us to add all these biomechanics principles into our secondary methods court or secondary courses. We don't like we haven't taken those courses in years and now all of a sudden this yeah. is changing so they asked us to run a professional development on integrating biomechanics into secondary pe because they are in the virginia standards of learning so those things come up so we designed a professional development to do it and to serve that community because that's what they asked for and i think those are obviously we all want to go in like that I, that's not my area of expertise. It's not biomechanics, but I could figure out how to plan and you know disseminate uh, a professional development for that. Absolutely. And I think that's sometimes part of our job. Again, we don't get rewarded for that. We do it because it's serving the community. But um, yeah, I think we also need to be a little bit uncomfortable and not always teach the things that we know that we always do really, really well. Yeah. And yeah, I, I totally get that. And I think it's, it's very important that those relationships exist. And I think, again, as, as faculty, we also have to be very mindful that often we're situated in communities that have means, right? Mm -hmm. Most, most universities have decent school districts in the surrounding areas, mostly because there's higher income in those areas. The, the university often drives business opportunities, you know, runs all the way down the list. And I think, again, as, as practitioners slash scholars, teachers, former teachers, we have to be mindful to make sure we're not leaving out certain communities that don't have those means, that don't have the resources. And I think we often have to be very mindful about being able to give time to those school districts that might not even be able to afford paying for an outside professional to come in right. and give those types of, of resources. Yeah. And Absolutely. with, and with the, with the pandemic, I think we've, we've all had to forcibly be learn how to do things remotely. And I think that could be a potential, uh, a great potential feature avenue for delivering professional development into those areas, whether they're in urban areas or they're in extreme rural areas um, that are often disadvantaged in receiving these professional development opportunities. I think with everything moving remotely and us being a little bit more competent in using these tools, we should be able to start reaching out and actually providing services um, to those areas. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, skip down a little bit to uh, Kathy Armour's work. Um, yeah. We we can agree that there's a disconnect between higher education and K-12 teaching when it comes to research, regardless of yeah. some researchers who are t trying to publish in papers like Joe Bird and Strategies, maybe in addition mm -hmm. to or instead of publishing in research uh, research journals. But can you talk a little bit about Kathy Armour's proposed pedagogical cases and your advice to mend the gap between the, the two parties? Yeah, I think with with her work, the idea was to present 
essentially to train to do that translational work within the paper mm-hmm. so whatever the findings are whatever the study is you're taking that next step already in the paper to translate that research to the practitioner so we we kind of already you know touched on it a little bit um but just the idea that we often write a paper and the idea is it goes out into the world and people read it and then they translate it or they transfer it into their own lives, right? They, they see something that's important. They go, okay, I'm going to take that information and I'm going to apply it. But as we're finding, it doesn't happen necessarily with educational research and the teaching professions. Um, And so what I think armor is presenting is the idea that we within that initial paper take that first step we present the work in a way that somebody is going to be much more able to transfer it into their situation right so it's it's kind of jump starting the process mm-hmm. um, of getting it actually into classroom or um, her examples are, can even be more broadly the physical activity areas. And so you could think of personal training or physical fitness, um, where if you're doing work in those areas, you're not just saying, hey, these are our findings. This is important. This is what you should do. But actually breaking it down into almost sort of a case, mm-hmm. a case study, kind of presenting an idea of these are the findings. This is why it's important. Here's an example of how you can do it. Right. Yeah. So. You, you talk about this added benefit in, in your, your specific study of if you would have done interviews to understand AP teachers' perceptions of research in a deeper way. Is this something that you're planning on doing or do you think that that would add something, something more to this line of inquiry? Yeah, so in the, in the survey, we did ask some open-ended questions, um, but they're very short, right? Mm-hmm. I think the longest one may have been, you know, maybe a hundred words if that. And so you don't get a great deal of context or depth within responses like that. And so thankfully we did have um, Brad and Chris to be able to contextualize some of those responses and, and to give a little bit of insight of what might've been behind what that person said in, you know, 30 words. But we are really at a surface level, just sort of taking a broad view of Mm. what research use or what research perception is like in the adapted PE teacher community. I think to, to really get into it, to really understand what differences there were, right? Why um, those with, with more education thought research uh, was a waste of money or why people didn't feel they had enough time is really going to take something that is is much more qualitative in nature. It's going to be having to do interviews or focus groups with teachers to really understand in their situations why they may feel this way or why they might not feel this way. Um, And so we are, I think, exploring that um, in pandemic-adjusted timetables of, of, of looking at doing future inquiries into really delving in and really trying to contextualize what we found in this paper. Yeah. So let's talk about things that are free, like social media, podcasts, blogs. How can, how can we use the increase of these online platforms to one, 
allow easier access to research and evidence-based practices to to those teachers out there and to how how can they research the effects that um you know it has on practitioners and researchers yeah i think um well your podcast this podcast um scott's podcast are great examples of of doing that translational work of mm-hmm. of presenting papers that might not be accessible or not written for necessarily practitioner audiences of, of putting that research in context and actually breaking it down in a way that is accessible. And we, we know people listen to podcasts. I mean, we know people are on social media. We know they use these tools um, every day and not, not just to access what they want to know for teaching, but just day to day life. Right. And I think breaking it down, making it, making the effort um, to use these tools is going to be really impactful. I think researchers need to, whatever they're comfortable with, of using social media tools, using you know a website or even a blog if they want to. It doesn't have to be something that you update like uh, Ash Casey does you know, on a, a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. It can be monthly or, or bi-monthly, but putting stuff in places where people can find it. And using social media tools to reach people because that's where they are. Um, we know even just in, in this sample that a vast majority of people found teaching tools on social media sites, whether it's Facebook or Twitter um, or Pinterest or TikTok or any of the other ones that are out there right now. And it's hard to keep up with them. But I think if you can find one or two that you like and you can actually use and navigate you can start to get in the places where people are at because we know if, if we're not there, somebody is going to fill that void. And I've seen some really good teaching practices presented on Twitter. I've seen some really bad things presented yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. And if nobody is there, I don't want to say policing, but if nobody is there presenting an alternative, people are going to use those tools right? and they're going to use them because they're there, right? Because they're easy to access. Yeah. Um, and so if, if you're not on social media, if you're not advocating for these extra tools, um, you know, I think it's something that's a great start for researchers to, you know, build into their practice. Um, and there's something else I wanted to say, but now I lost my train of thought. Well, and for those scholars that are listening who have published research before, if you want to try this exercise, I'm happy to open up the blog at thehpuwebsite.com slash blog. Just go on there, check out the other ones. I have a couple of my own articles. My colleague, uh, Dominique Banville, has one on hers and a couple of different scholars from around around the world who've gone in and taken their research article, disseminated down to about uh, a seven to 10 minute read, maybe shorter, a 1, thousand, 1300 words. And those are the things that you can actually have somebody read on their break or on their coffee break or when they're drinking coffee in the morning. And, you know, to be honest, not a lot of them are also going to read your 28 page dense research paper. That's just, that's just the the truth. And so if you want to, you know, meet them where they're at, maybe meet them at the coffee table. I, the reason I started this podcast was I wanted to be able to, give research to people who were just driving to work. If they yeah. drive 20 yeah. minutes there, 20 minutes back, you would have already listened to this, to this podcast. 
Yeah, I know. I think that it's a fantastic um, tool that you've created um, to help disseminate that work. And I, I think the doing things even like medium, where mm-hmm. you can yeah. do exactly what you said, and you don't need to know how to run a blog or yeah. anything. You can you can put that work out there. Absolutely. I think I I remember what I was going to say earlier um, is as a as an educator, you know, teaching future teachers. I think we also need to give them the tools on where to find this information when they leave. Mm-hmm. So build, building into our professional practices courses, hey, here's where you get all this research once you're there. Here's where you can find ideas. You know, building in, you know, podcasts into the quote unquote reading material yeah. of classes can help kind of build that um reading diet that students will have in the future if they're already used to finding information in podcasts or knowing that certain twitter accounts put out really good information they know they they're going to gravitate toward that but if we don't give them those opportunities they're just you know they're going to be in the dark once they are out in the real world of teaching and they're standing in front of 35 year olds um when we ultimately get back to teaching in person yeah, and they're going to need to know what to do. Yeah. It's, it's great that you brought that up. I just started doing that with my, uh, with my older group, uh, in my secondary and primary classes. So students come in. So if we're teaching in person, they come in on the day that we're teaching and they share in groups of two or three, their professional development activity for the week. So that's, reading Ash Casey's blog or listening to a podcast or taking out their cell phone and showing them a Twitter handle that they found that's really good and explaining why it's important, what they learned or summarizing a game or activity. And now remotely they're doing it in these short screencasts or short like summaries. And I'm getting a ton of professional (laughs) development links there too, because I'm watching them every single week. But they are then you can see that they see somebody's website through another student who had discovered it and then next week and that person is going to a different website and looking at oh this was really cool i'm going to explore it further and i keep telling them i'm like it's not it's not busy work for you it's work that will hopefully train you into understanding that once i'm no longer your teacher and you're out on there on on your own that you know how to continuously find good, reliable resources. And if they do bring up that Twitter video that I saw this week that had 100 likes and 15 comments, and I was like, I would never teach that to my students. That's super dangerous. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Then we get to explain that. Yeah, that's perfect. I think that's a great practice. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I think, you know, the article is a great look into research and how it's perceived um, and used at the practitioner level. So hopefully um, future research in in pandemic or non-pandemic times can kind of dive deeper into bridging that gap between higher education and AP practitioners. So we will uh, link to the full article in the, in the notes section. And uh, that's all we got. So thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rista. It's been a pleasure.